You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you guys. Glad you're here this morning. Man, it's good to be together. Um, Just sitting on the front row, hearing all of you sing, kiddos in the gathering, hearing you sing. I just love that. I want to just encourage you to prioritize this gathering over the summer. We've got more chairs, and we'll put more in here. Um, We're we're really hopeful and and expectant of what God is going to do in our church this summer as we really lean in and squeeze into one gathering. We continue to pray for renewal, that God would renew us in our midst, that he would, would spark something new in us, both personally and corporately, that God would work through us in our city in this time and in this place. And so I want to encourage you, just continue to prioritize this gathering over the summer. Be here, invite others, your friends from Redeemer, invite them to encourage them to prioritize this gathering. Your your friends um, that don't know Jesus or that don't have a church, they're welcome here. Invite them into this place. And so excited about what God has in store for us this summer. We're continuing in our sermon series in the book of Titus titled A Healthy Church in a Hectic World. And in Titus, the Apostle Paul is writing, and really what he's doing is he's showing us in in this letter to Titus what matters most in the church. In other words, what is essential if the church is going to be the church, if it's going to be healthy, if it's going to reflect the good news of Jesus and, and honor Christ in the world and follow Christ on his mission in the world, what is essential, what matters most? And this is what we've been looking at for several weeks now, and now we find our way into Titus chapter 3. And the title of this sermon this morning is Mission Matters. Mission Matters. If a church is going to be healthy, it needs to be a church that is postured and positioned in the world so that it can be on Jesus' mission. I've titled it Mission Matters because in our text today, we get a set of instructions for how we as followers of Jesus are to relate to outsiders. Your your Bible might use that subheading for this section Maybe something like instructions for outsiders. Certain versions of the Bible do that. Um, it really what it means is how do we relate to those who do not believe what we believe? How do we relate to unbelievers? How do we live in an unbelieving world and relate to the world? And so I just want to say this up front. This is primarily a sermon for, follow- for Christians, for followers of Jesus this morning. And it's a very important one for us. But if you're here this morning and you're not sure where you are with Jesus, you're not really sure kind of where you are in faith and what you think about him, I want you to know, first of all, we're glad you're here. You're welcome here. This is a place where we hope that it's a safe place for you to explore the claims of Christ, who he is and what he's done, and even get a chance to even see and hear how the grace of Jesus is changing and transforming us. But if that's you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I hope that what you'll see and hear this morning is who we are aspiring to be. Who the, how the church ought to position itself in an unbelieving world. And I hope that in, in seeing who we aspire to be, you might even get a glimpse of the good news of Jesus for your life this morning as well. Here's the thesis of the sermon. I'll just give it to you up front. All right, spoiler alert. Here it is. A healthy church is a church that is living every day on mission. It's living every day on mission in an unbelieving world. And it's a church that's motivated to do so by the saving grace of God in our own lives. Paul began to set this idea up uh, back in chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, what we looked at last week. Uh, Paul tells us to remember that we are living in between two appearings. 
He says, you can even let your eyes look back at chapter 2 if you want. He says in verses 11 through 15, he reminds us that grace appeared, that Jesus really came, God's own son really appeared in real time, in real history, that grace appeared. And when Jesus appeared, he actually accomplished something. He, he lived a life that we couldn't live. He died a sinner's death so that we could be reconciled to God, so that we could be freed up from sin and death and Satan and brought into relationship with a loving God the creator God. He says grace appeared, and, and Jesus in his first appearing accomplished something, and that grace is being applied to our lives. He says that grace is training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live an upright, holy life in this present age. And then he says that Jesus will appear again. In other words, grace is coming again. So grace appeared. In the meantime, we're now waiting on grace to appear again. When Jesus comes again, he will come in glory. And he will unload upon you a dump truck of grace when he comes again. And so we are living in between these two appearings. And so the question that Paul wants us to wrestle with, and then one, come to learn and understand, is that how we live in between the appearings of Christ as people who have been changed by grace matters. We saw that last week. Our holiness matters. And the call for us is not to just sit in pews and wait for Jesus to return and try not to be bad and try really hard just to do good, but it's to position and posture ourselves in such a way in the world that the grace that is training us begins to impact and change and train others. That's the idea. Now, this is a relevant conversation for us. This is a relevant word for us. I mean, how many of you guys are wrestling with this, ta- this question? I mean, how, how do I live in an increasingly secular world? Like, how do I relate to people in my life, in my neighborhood, in my family, in my workplace, who don't believe what I believe or who don't hold the values that I hold? I mean, I, I'm sure you've noticed this. Like, if you are a convictional Christian in today's culture, you are in the minority, increasingly so, right? I mean, am I the only one? Okay, so this is a relevant question for us. We, our society has shifted quickly. It is rapidly growing more secular. How do we position and posture ourselves? Do we puff up our chest? Do we hide our eyes and run away? What do we do? Well, this is what Paul is addressing in this text. And before we look back into the text, what I want to do is I really kind of want to just set it up this way. I want to give us three mistakes that the church has made throughout history in, in regard to mission, in regard to how it relates to an unbelieving world. I think that this is important that we kind of get the, the um, what not to do first uh, before we look at what Paul says that we are to do. And as we all walk through these kind of three mistakes in mission, um, I even just want you to try and locate yourself here, okay? Because all of us have a tendency in, in how we relate to an unbelieving world. I want to invite you to locate yourself here. And so three common mistakes that the church has made throughout history and how it's related to an unbelieving world. The first is what is called sectarianism. Sectarianism. You know, there are many Christians who want to just kind of segment and separate themselves away from the world. Sectarianism is simply this. It's to run from the world, right? To run from the world. Like, you know, something like this. Like, you know, my kids, I've got to kind of protect them from the world, right? I can't let my kids catch sin from those sinner kids, you know, like sends the flu, something that we can catch from someone else, right? Notice I used flu and not COVID there on purpose. Um, that's not how sin works, by the way. 
Your, your kids are sinners already. And so a sectari- sectarianist or sectarianism is kind of this idea of we've got to run from the world, separate ourselves from the world. We can't, uh, we can't kind of be over there with those heathens. We've got, to, we've got to kind of get out over here by ourselves and live our lives in a Christian bubble or in a holy huddle. And here's the problem with sectarianism. Is here's what it produces. It kind of produces this um, posture of judgment and condemnation to the world and to unbelievers from afar. So we judge and we condemn from a distance, right? We start to think, hey, they are bad and, and we are good. They are wrong and we are right. They are sinners and we aren't. And it kind of creates this divide and this you know, elevated field in which we start to stand on. But here's the problem with sectarianism, is that Jesus prayed quite clearly and convictionally in John chapter 17, one of his final moments, that the Father wouldn't take his, his disciples out of the world, but that he would leave them in the world so that the world might know his love through us. And the world won't know the love of Christ through the people of Christ if the people of Christ separate themselves from the people of the world. It's a mistake in mission. The second mistake in mission that Christians can regularly make is what's called syncretism. It's kind of the opposite end of the spectrum of sectarianism. It's to run into the world. It's to so blend in with the world that nobody even can tell that you follow Jesus at all. It's to make Jesus like the world. It's to try and make Jesus cool so that he would be attractive to the world. It's to run into the world. And here's what sectarianism produces. You become indistinguishable from the culture or from the world. Maybe you feel this at your workplace. Maybe you're like, hey, look, I I don't kind of want to be judgy and the condemning person, and so I'm just going to kind of go with the flow and the vibe of the workplace. And you can easily fall into to syncretism, so badly not wanting to be judgy that you end up affirming everything and that we actually let go of the truth. And here's the problem with syncretism, is that number one, we tarnish our witness, and number two, we lose our distinctiveness in the world. Jesus addresses this in Matthew chapter 5, where he says to his disciples that we are to be a city on a hill, that we are to be salt and light in the world, bright and distinctive, unique set apart from the world. And so there's sectarianism, there's synchronism, and then there's a third way in which many get mission wrong, and it's what I will call culture warring. Culture warring. It's to rage against the world. So not to run from it or to run into it, but to rage against it. And this is kind of a a common thing that we're experiencing right now. Many Christians in many churches are, are kind of warring with the culture. They're puffing up our chest and to say, no, we'll hold on to our position and our place in the culture. We won't let you secular people take it from us. It's to rage against the culture. And here's what it produces. It produces a life that's filled with anger and hostility toward those who oppose our values and beliefs. Those who engage in culture warring villainize and demonize secular people. They start to treat them like enemies. Um, Culture warring people give labels like those liberals. Several decades ago in the 60s and 70s, culture warring Christians would have said, those hippies, right? Right? This is a mistake in mission. It creates a toxic us versus them mentality where we look to win political battles and culture wars rather than looking to win souls for the kingdom of God. And Jesus tells us that we, his followers, are to love our enemies, not to war against them. We're to bless those who curse us. Jesus, in fact, gave up his life for you and me when we were his enemies. 
dead in our sins and trespasses, that we might be reconciled to God and to one another. You see, a healthy church is a church that does not run from the world, does not run into the world, or rage against the world, but a church that remains in Jesus in the world. A church that remains in Jesus. Abide in me, for apart from me you can do nothing. Abide in me, and you will bear much fruit. A healthy church is a church that remains in Jesus in the world. This is what Paul shows us in this text. He shows us what it looks like for us to be a faithful gospel presence in the world, and it is first and foremost all about our posture, okay? Now, I could preach a completely different sermon on mission where we talk about evangelism and how we actually speak the gospel. That's not what this text is about. This text is first and foremost about posture. How many of you know that posture matters? If you're married and your spouse comes to you with a hostile posture, even if what they're saying is true, will it be received? No. No. I mean, dukes are up, right? It's like, let's go. Ding, ding, ding. It's all about posture. Posture matters. Let's look back at the text. The posture of mission for God's people in an unbelieving world. Verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready for every good work. First of all, he says, remind them. He's saying, Titus, I left you in Crete to teach them. I left you in Crete to put the church in order so that it would be healthy. He's given already instructions for elders. We've looked at that. He's given instructions for entire households. And now he's giving instructions for everyone, for the whole church, anyone who calls Jesus Lord. And he says that the whole church is to be submissive to authorities and to be obedient. Followers of Jesus are not rebellious people. Okay? Okay. Followers of Jesus are not rebellious people. We follow a crucified Messiah. A crucified Messiah who changed the world through death and resurrection, not through force and rebellion. So the people of Jesus are not a rebellious people. The people of Jesus are to be a law-abiding people. They are people of peace. They are people of deep faith and confidence that no matter what is going on in the world around us, Jesus is risen, Jesus is reigning, Jesus is ruling the world, he is holding all things together, he is the ultimate Lord, not whoever is the president or the emperor or the governor, Jesus is holding all things together, he's risen, he's reigning, he's ruling, and he is coming again, and so we submit to others out of reverence for King Jesus, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21. Jesus is ultimate reality for the follower of Jesus. And so we don't panic, we don't rage against authorities, but we pray for our authorities, the Bible tells us. We don't panic. So we need to believe that there is power in our obedience and humble submission as Jesus' people. In other words, God can do something really big through the collective obedience of a church. I mean, think about this in first century Rome, which, by the way, Christians that were receiving, the original audience that was receiving this word, they were much more persecuted than you or I, okay? Like, we were feeling some social pressures. There are Christians all around the world right now that are much more persecuted than you and I. I mean, there's a real physical threat to their life. And what the scriptures are saying here is that through the collective Humble obedience and submission of the whole church, God can do something really big. Like, I, I realized this this week when I got a speeding ticket for going 15 miles an hour over the speed limit 
right in front of the church at which I pastor. <laughs> Not a good look, right? Not a good look. Um, we are to be obedient. Obedience is a gospel issue, isn't it? We are to be obedient. People, I realized there was a bit of a rebellious spirit still in my heart. Like, ah, that rules, you know? That big of a deal. We're, uh, we, we are to be obedient. Here's the principle. In our everyday obedience to authorities in our lives and in our good citizenship in our city and in our country, we, as the people of Jesus, are accruing missional credibility. That's why this matters. One, it honors King Jesus. It's worship unto him. We are accruing missional credibility. Now, the opposite can also be true, right? I mean, haven't we seen that? The opposite can also be true. We can ruin our missional credibility through our disobedience, through our civil unrest, those types of things. Next, he says we are to be ready for every good work. And this is still talking about our citizenship. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We are sojourners living here and now. We are to be um, displaying what citizenship in the kingdom of heaven looks like. And he says we are to be ready for every good work. And Paul talks a lot about good works throughout Titus. He, said, he mentions it six times. We see it again in verse 8. In fact, look over at verse 8. He kind of sums this all up by saying, This is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Now, it's important that we have the right paradigm to understand this phrase, good works. What is Paul talking about? Well, Paul isn't necessarily talking about us as Christians just kind of being do-gooders. Like, that's not, like I had a friend in high school who was kind of your stereotypical Christian in high school. Like He was just a do-gooder, right? He wore Christian t-shirts every day. Um, he kind of had all the Bible verse wristbands, only listened to Christian music, you know, sat down at the cafeteria and lunch every day, and if you tried to talk to him before he prayed for his food, he'd be like, no, 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 pray for my food. Like, he was kind of the typical Christ, high school Christian do-gooder. And I even think about that now, and I'm like, I wonder how missionally effective that was. Like, how missionally effective was that? Like, was he, maybe he was doing it to honor Jesus. I, I don't know. I'm not sure. But, but that's not necessarily what Paul is talking about here. Instead, here is what he means. He's not just saying generally be a do-gooder. Instead, what he's saying is that we are to see ourselves as the hands and feet of Jesus all the time, ready, all the time. We are the hands and feet of Jesus, as citizens of the kingdom living in the world. He's, he's, saying, like, he's saying, essentially, live as if you are united to Christ. Live every moment as if you're united to Christ. Live every moment as if you're indwelt with the Spirit of God. Live every moment as if you are an ambassador of the coming kingdom of God. Why? Because you are. <laughs> you are. So be, be ready. He's also saying, live every moment, every place you go, every, every room that you walk into as if God is always at work around you, as if God is in the world actively drawing men, women, and children to himself by his saving grace. Why? Because he is. And so he's saying, be ready. Be ready. You are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Be ready. Don't be passive. Be ready. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Be ready for every good work. Have your eyes open and your ears attentive and your hands ready to bless and your lips ready to speak of the hope that you have in Christ. Here's the principle. To be ready for every good work means that you see yourself 
as a missionary and that you see all of life as an opportunity for mission. This is what he's saying. We've, I've been trying hard to kind of help my kids learn this. I mean, even simple things like, um, you know, we, we pull up to, uh, to spend a lot of time at baseball practices or baseball games, like pulling up to a field and just, hey, before we head out to the field, let's just pray. God, help us to love people the way you've loved us. Help us to have our eyes open and our ears and our hands ready to encourage and bless and, and speak of the hope that we have in Jesus. You know, just kind of pray that prayer before we get out of the truck and walk to baseball practice. Do you see the difference and actually being ready and, and believing what is true about you as a, as a, as a child of God, as a, a one indwelt with the Spirit, as an ambassador of his kingdom, and then, and then not being ready? In fact, think of the things that our culture are ready for all the time. I mean, we live in a culture that is constantly ready to condemn and to tear down and to be sarcastic or to give a cynical word. But yet the people of Jesus have the opportunity to be distinct in the fact that we're ready to bless or to encourage or to serve or to speak, to listen, to be present, to pray with those that we encounter. Then he moves on, verse 2. He says, teach them, remind them to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling. This is difficult. Um, essentially what he's saying is avoid disparaging other people and avoid outrage and arguing. There was a time and place in American history, I think, maybe, um, where outrage was like not an, an emotion you wanted to feel, right? It's like, I'd like to actually feel positive and peaceful today. That'd be a good day. We live in a time where outrage is no, outrage is like normal. Like people want to be outraged. They're like looking for something to be outraged over. Like you, you just look at social media and like people are looking to fight and argue, you know? Like I could post like the sun is yellow on Twitter and then someone would jump in the comments and be like, well, from your perspective, it's yellow. But you know, it's like people just want to argue and be outraged. And this is difficult and Christians are getting caught in this. He says, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling. This means even when we've been wronged or when we are offended, speak evil of no one. This is hard because there's actually, from our perspective, as people who believe the Bible and have experienced the grace of the gospel and know the truth of God, there's actually a lot in the world to speak evil against. In other words, there's a lot of evil in the world. This is difficult. There's, there's a lot of lies in the world. We have a real enemy who's active. There's a lot of lies out there, and the temptation is to want to use our words to call out, to tear down, to argue. This is true on multiple levels. This is true even on a personal level. If someone does evil to you or if someone offends you, maybe in your workplace or in your family, our, tempta the our temptation, our tendency is to want to be our own defender, right? And to, to speak evil or to, to plead our case. And, and Paul is saying here for the Christian, Jesus is your defense. Jesus is your advocate. Even if someone does harm to you, Jesus is your healer. His grace is that powerful. Do not repay evil with evil. This is the posture of the people of God. Don't gossip, don't slander, don't go on the attack. Don't look to tear down, don't be cynical like the world. And then this is also true on a, on a societal level. I mean, there is so much madness going on right now in our society. Like someone told me this week that moms are no longer allowed to be called moms, so you have to be called birthing people. 
I mean, there's like, there, there's madness just going on all around us. And it's so easy to want to just, like, you know, kind of hurl um, uh, uh, grenades with our words and to call out and to tear down and disparage. It's so tempting to want to laugh and mock the ideologies of the world. But the Bible is telling us here, and this is hard, this isn't easy. It's telling us here to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy. That word means kindness and goodness. Perfect kindness and goodness to who? All people, all types of people outside the family of God. That's what he's saying. So here's the principle. Our posture in the world ought to be that of Christ Jesus, gentle in word and deed with all people. You know, there's only one time in the Bible that God explicitly tells us what his heart is like. You know that? And it's Jesus. And he says, come to me, who? All, anyone who's weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for I am, what does he say? Gentle and lowly at heart. Let that sink in for a minute. The people of Jesus in an unbelieving world are to be gentle in word and deed with all types of people, seeing everyone first and foremost as image bearers of God in need of God's grace and transforming truth in their life. Now, I, I, I debated whether I would even share this story or not. I want to just confess with you how the Holy, confess to you how the Holy Spirit used this verse to convict me this week. Um, I'm sure that you are aware of this. Our society is celebrating Pride Month this month, okay? I'm sure you're aware of this. You've, you've seen it. It's in your face. And just to be clear, we're a church that holds to the historic Christian view of gender and sexuality, okay? Uh, the historic Christian view of gender, sexuality, marriage. And so Pride Month is actually a, a really great case study for us of how we take the content of this text and we apply it to like real life, like real time, real time application for how do we relate and live in, relate to and live in an unbelieving world. We've got a great case study here. And I'm just going to kind of be honest with you about kind of how uh, something happened to me this week. Now, most of the kind of in your face stuff of Pride Month hasn't really bothered me much in previous years. Like it's never really bothered me much. It just hasn't. Like I've never gotten uh, all up in arms about it. Um, I know that maybe for some of you, perhaps when you, you know, kind of walk into Target and you see the, the Pride Month section or, you know, and you see all the commercials all the time, like it maybe wants you to kind of run from the world and like, you know, you're the person walking into Target and you see the Pride Month section and the kids are like, hey, can we go over there? And you're like, no, come on, over here. You know, you just go to the other aisle, like you want to run from it. You want to ignore it and pretend like you don't live in an unbelieving world. Others of you, maybe you, um, you, you've kind of bought the lie of the culture, the false dichotomy of the culture that you're either an ally or a bigot, and you don't want to be a bigot. And so, you, you know, you kind of put the, the ally Facebook frame thing on your profile picture because you don't want to be a bigot. And so you've kind of bought that lie, which is not true, by the way. That's the whole point of this text is that we can hold to the truth that we believe, but in a gentle, loving, relational, compassionate way. And then there's some of you that just want to rage against it, you know? You're just like, oh, you just want to rage against the stuff of Pride Month. But for me, it really hasn't bothered me that much, honestly. My perspective has kind of been this. It's been like, look, this is just our time and place in which God's asked us to be the church. God's asked us to be the church in a time in history where there's just a lot of confusion 
and unfortunate experimenting with sexuality and gender. And there's only one way that it will end. I mean, the Bible's clear. There's a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. There's only one way that this will end, and it will end with a lot of pain and scars and hurt, but eventually it will prove its fruit. It reminds me of like the hippie movement of the 60s and 70s. There were decades of, you know, kind of culture saying life is found in, you know, drugs and experiment with drugs, and it's, it's fine, it's normative, go for it, don't let people put boundaries on your life. Life is found in free love, just pursue it, and don't let people put boundaries on your life, and, and we saw what happened there, right? There were Christians who were called to kind of plant their flag and, and, and be the church in the midst of a culture that was going a bit crazy on those issues, and we saw how that ended. It ended with a lot of pain and hurt and wounds, and scars, and, and then what did the message become in schools in the 80s and 90s? If you grew up like me, it was what? Kids, don't do drugs, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. That's just kind of been my posture, like, hey, it's just our time and place, like, it'll bear its fruit, let's be faithful to Jesus, but I just want to be honest with you. I had a day this past week where something just completely flipped a switch in me, and I felt my tendency. I wanted to rage against the world, Okay? And I want to tell you what happened. I pulled out my phone and I went to Disney Plus so that I could give my daughter my phone while we were at my son's baseball practice and so that she would chill out. <laughs> and as I glanced at my phone on Disney Plus before I handed it to my daughter, I saw just very quickly that what popped up at the beginning was that there was a Pride Month category where you could watch movies and shows, you know, Pride Month movies and shows. I don't even know what that means. But I found myself just suddenly just like getting furious, like, as someone who believes that life is found in the design and good governance of God over our lives and our bodies and our sexuality, and who want my children to know that truth, that life is found in the good design and governance of God over our lives and our bodies and our sexualities, all of a sudden I'm seeing like, what are you doing? You're like curating a movie list for my four-year-old daughter? And I just wanted to start to rage. I just felt it. Like, you're, you're, you're trying to promote lies and normalize temptation and sin and brokenness for my four-year-old daughter. And I just wanted to rage. And, and, and listen, this is just one of the many things that we will come across as we live in an unbelieving world. But it, it triggered my tendency. And I wanted to speak evil and slander this movement. I wanted to tear down the people who promote this madness and this narrative, I was offended, you know? And I wanted to start to condemn other people. But by God's grace and loving kindness, as I felt it all welling up in me, the Holy Spirit started to convict me. Do you know what a gift conviction of sin is, by the way? What kindness of our God. He started to convict me, and he stopped me in my tracks, and he immediately brought to mind Titus chapter 3, verse 3 through 7, which was not only a passage I was preparing to preach, but a passage of scripture that has been incredibly significant to me since I've been a Christian. And I want to just read it to you. Look at Titus chapter 3, 3 through 7. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own 
mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Do you know that you were so dead in your sins? You were so dead in your sins that God had to graciously come to you by his spirit and love and wash your hearts by his spirit so that you could even have eyes that would open to the grace of God. And then he goes on. Paul just explodes in verse 7 and 6 and 7 and just this gospel explosion. But not by any work of our own doing, but by his own mercy, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You know, church, how do we live in an unbelieving world? We live as people of grace. We are, live as people who are who we are by his grace. People who believe what we believe by his grace. People who know what we know by his grace. You are someone who has overcome what you've overcome by his grace. You have dodged the bullets that you have dodged by his grace. The people of Jesus are a we were once people. Are a we were once people. The people of Jesus are a but-for-grace people. People who see the foolishness of the world and the sins of our neighbors and the idols of others and the evil all around us and we view it with compassion. That's what this text is telling us. We view it with compassion because we understand it. We don't condone it, but we understand it. We were once foolish and blind and dead in our sins and enslaved to various passions. You see, it's the grace of God poured out in our lives that ought to trigger not sectarianism or synchronism or culture warring, but the grace of God ought to trigger missionally motivated love for the world. Love for the world. C.S. Lewis once said that friendship starts with a you too moment. He says, friendship is born at the moment when one says, what, you too? You know, like, what, you too? You like Star Wars? We're friends, you know? I don't, I've never seen a Star Wars movie in my life, but I know that some of you people are really nerdy about this. You know, you're like Star Wars brothers. What, you too? You, you, you like Texas Tech? We're friends, you know? <laughs> Lewis says it starts with this you too Moment. It's commonality that we share that draws us together. Well, what Paul is telling us here is he's reminding us, he's saying that life on Jesus' mission, it starts similar, similarly. It starts when we recognize the commonality that we share with non-believers. When we see the sin or the foolishness of a friend or of a coworker, of a neighbor, or we see the, the, the tendencies of a wayward child, or we see the worldly ways of thinking that people are buying into, and we don't judge or condemn or run from or rage against, but we say, me too. We say, that was me. I struggled with that too. I was once enslaved to that too. I used to think that way too. Verse three, but God's grace appeared. He sought me out. He saved me. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. It was by sheer grace. And he's still pouring out his grace on me richly now. And I still don't deserve any of it. And he's given me life. And he's given me hope. And he's given me purpose beyond this wretched world. We befriend and love with hope and grace and the mercy of Christ. You see, this is our motivation for 
life on mission in the world, the saving grace of Jesus in our lives that we didn't deserve or earn, and the saving power of Jesus and his ability to do the same for others. And I just want to ask you this morning, I want to ask you to reflect for a moment. With what person or in what space of your life is God asking you to lean in, to change your posture, and to begin to live with missionally motivated love? What person, what area of your life is God asking you and saying, you need a mission matters. If the church is going to be healthy, it's a church on mission, motivated by grace and the everyday stuff of life. You need to lean in. You need to change your posture. You don't need to run from or run into or rage against. And you need to love, motivated by the love of Christ for you. He's given you clear instructions in this text for how to do it. And he's given you fuel on how to stay at it, his saving grace and power. Back to that day that I was offended and enraged by Disney Plus. Um, in the midst of my offense, as I was sitting at a baseball field, feeling a rage monster coming out inside of me, um, the Lord gently started to convict me, and he brought a very clear question to mind. And it was this question. How did the most righteous, right? I'm sitting there in my self-righteousness and in my offense. How did the most righteous, most offended one respond to you, Jordan? That was a question that the Lord just brought to my mind. How did the most righteous, most offended one respond to you? And the Spirit just started to kind of flood my mind with verses, of the, with Scripture verses. And I, this is probably a preacher thing, but I do this. I like will text myself stuff that I want to remember, So I just started texting myself verses that the Spirit was bringing to mind. He forgave all my iniquities. He crowns me with steadfast love and mercy. He's slow to anger. Even his righteous anger is slow. God is so patient right now in this world. He's so compassionate. He's slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love. He drew near to me in loving kindness and he washed and regenerated my heart. He didn't stay at a distance. He didn't affirm me in my sin. He didn't rage against my soul. And he's still redeeming me now by his grace. He's saving me every day. You see, in that moment, I was reminded of something that I've lived most of my days with, but in that moment, I forgot. In that moment, I had gospel amnesia. (laughs) I forgot the gospel in that moment. He reminded me that LGTBQ plus is not an ideology for Christians to, to war against. They are people to be pursued in love. They are image bearers of God, people that are uh, postured in the world with grace and truth and love, with gentleness and courtesy. And, and again, this is just one of the many issues or instances that you will encounter as you live your life on mission as, God, as God's missionary people in this present age. But this is the posture. This is the call. That we too need the grace of Jesus to keep training us. Jesus' grace won't allow us to run from or run into or rage against the world. It disarms all of those temptations. It compels us to live in this world with humility, ready for every good work, with gentleness, showing loving kindness to all. You see, friends, listen, mission matters. If God's going to renew us, he's going to first and foremost renew us with his grace. And if God is going to breathe revival in our city through our church, it's because by his grace, as we remember his grace and are trained by his grace, we position ourselves in the world in such a way that we can proclaim the good news of Jesus for others. Let me pray to this end.
God, I pray that whatever you want to do in this room this morning, you would do it. I pray that you would help us to respond to your word. I think that for some of us this morning, we needed to be convicted and corrected of our posture in the world. And thank you for your kindness. Would you position us and posture us, right? Each of us, right where you've placed us, where we live, where we work, for the students in the room, where they learn, right wherever you've, you've placed us. Would we posture ourselves in such a way that we extend your grace and your loving kindness and your patience and your gentleness. We embody your truth to an unbelieving world around us. Correct our posture, Holy Spirit. I pray that, Lord, for some of us, we needed to be reminded of the grace you've poured out in our lives. Would you stir up, continue to stir up in this time of response our memory of what you saved us from, of who we once were before you showed up in our lives, how you've opened our eyes, how you've changed us, how you've softened our heart. And God, if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know you, I pray, God, that they would get a taste of your grace, that you would draw them sweetly and gently to yourself, that they would give up on the lies of the world, on the pursuits of sin, the things that lead to death, and God, they would give their life over to you this morning, that you would meet them right here in this room this morning. God, would you draw people to yourself and your loving kindness? Set sinners free. Start with us, Lord. Set us free. Train us, Lord, to renounce ungodliness, to live self-controlled, upright lives in this present age so that more and more people will see the day drawing near. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at redeemerrr.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.